Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bowl & Branch sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl & Branch sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get even softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code INCREDIBLE. So head to bollandbranch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the program. In this episode, we're going to talk about a man named Ignacio Nacho Coronel. And if you want to understand the fentanyl game and how synthetic drugs became such a huge part of the narcotics trade for the Sinaloa cartel, you most certainly have to understand the man who ushered it all in. So today, we have an article from theall.com. And this article was posted all the way back on August 3rd, of 2010. Headline, Ignacio Coronel and what happens after a drug lord is killed. And this also dovetails into our ongoing conversation about the decapitation strategy that is used in the war on drugs. In a luxury suburb of Guadalajara last Thursday afternoon, one of the key leaders of the Sinaloa cartel, Ignacio Nacho Coronel, was shot dead during a brief gunfight with the Mexican Army Special Forces. Drawing on intelligence gathered over the past few weeks, the Army staged a raid on a home they believed was linked to drug trafficking. Coronel was inside. Witnesses reported hearing loud explosions and plenty of gunfire as helicopters and more than 150 men closed in on the drug baron. According to reports, Nacho got off enough shots with an assault rifle to kill one soldier before being killed. Now think about what would happen if they would have had those shoulder-fired missiles that we see over in Ukraine. Imagine if Nacho Coronel had three or four guys with those. Forget it. The Mexican army would never even attempt a raid like this. And moving forward in the future, you know that people like Nacho Coronel and the people he left in his wake are going to have access to those weapons. In the immediate terms, the raid was a huge success. Coronel was considered to be the third leader of the Sinaloa cartel and may be the biggest fish the Mexicans have caught, if that's the right word, so far in the drug war. The raid also netted the arrests of 10 of Coronel's bodyguards, over $7 million in cash and jewelry, three luxury vehicles, and perhaps, most importantly, his laptop. And whenever you have a digital footprint of somebody, that is the crown jewel for the authorities. Because chances are, you're going to have conversations on there, emails, things that you don't want the authorities to find on that computer. And then they'll use that to continue building their investigations. Authorities have announced that its contents have already been used to find and arrest Mario Carrasco Coronel, Nacho's nephew, and most likely his successor. The information gleaned from the laptop 
could end up having devastating effects on the ability of Nacho's organization to operate. And we know now that wasn't the case. Maybe in the short term. But in the long term, these guys adapt and they're willing to adjust on the fly to make sure things keep moving in the right direction. Reports claim that it contained information on companies he used to import drugs and launder funds, as well as information on his contacts. We'll soon see how this plays out for the rest of his outfit in Guadalajara and whether the intelligence will be used to seriously disrupt their ability to operate. Well, we know now that's not the case. And once again, this is another example of how the decapitation strategy just doesn't work. It sounds great. Don't get me wrong. Taking out scumbags at the top of the chain? Never a bad idea. But if that's the whole strategy, then it's going to fail. Because there's always going to be somebody ready to take that person's place. This is a big deal. For the government, it should do something to assuage the feeling that the other cartels were being selectively pursued while the Sinaloans were largely ignored. Well, we have to take into account that there were other things at play here. And in fact, Nacho Coronel's death led to the creation of CJNG. And we all know how dangerous they are, how violent they are. So it really didn't do anything to assuage anyone's feelings, to be honest with you. And now we know, in hindsight, after several different leaks and several different whistleblowers have come forward, that the government was, in fact, in bed with the Sinaloa cartel. And there's the talk that the Sinaloa cartel served up Nacho Coronel as some red meat. And after that betrayal, that led to the formation of CJNG. Coronel was one of the three main traffickers, along with Miles Zambada and Chapo Guzman, that make up the Sinaloa cartel or federation. Chances are that the cartel is already starting to adapt to Nacho's loss and putting contingency plans into action to maintain control. But how will this affect their operations? What happens to a drug cartel after the death of its leader? Well, we know now nothing. Nothing happens. Not if Nacho Coronel goes down. Not if El Chapo goes down. Not if Pablo Escobar goes down. As long as there's a market for those drugs in America and elsewhere, people are going to continue to make those drugs. And the next man up might be a lot worse than the guy you just took out. It's extremely important to understand Guzman, Zambada, and Coronel as independent traffickers working together under the same banner of self-interest, rather than as three bosses who have been working together to smuggle drugs as a team from the beginning. They've worked for different people over the years, taken different paths to get where they are. Drug trafficking is an entrepreneur's business, and the Sinaloa cartel is less a business in its own right than an alliance between several businesses. That's exactly what a cartel is. A cartel is a conglomerati of criminal enterprises working together to make shit happen. And that's exactly what you have down in Mexico with the Sinaloa cartel. There's never just been one boss. We've talked about this a lot. El Mayo has always been behind the scenes, pulling the strings. El Chapo was the quote-unquote face of the organization. But anybody who's thinking that El Mayo didn't have a lot of power, doesn't still have a lot of power, has no idea what they're talking about. Because El Mayo is one of the most powerful men in the history of this whole entire game. Let's remember, this guy's never been busted, 
never went to jail, doesn't run around like a fool, doesn't post on social media. This is a man who stays in the shadows, and he was more than willing to let El Chapo shoulder all of the scrutiny of the government and the authorities as he sat back and collected his billions. One could even say it's an alliance between three independent cartels. Cornell was called the King of Crystal for pioneering the domestic production of methamphetamine using precursor chemicals imported from India and Asia. And Nacho Coronel was the man who started the industrial-level production of methamphetamine inside of Mexico, which we know now has morphed into the production of fentanyl. So, basically, the father of all of it inside of Mexico is Nacho Coronel. This expertise is something he brought to the Sinaloa Federation. He wasn't hired to fill a need. He aligned with these powerful allies because of what he had to offer and what they could offer him in return. Of course, it had to do with the drug routes. It had to do with protection. It had to do with expanding your power base. And when you're working with other powerful narcos the way that Cornell was here, you're talking about a federation that is very, very hard to match. And at this point in time that we're talking about inside of Mexico, nobody was even close to touching the Sinaloa cartel or what they were capable of. Cornell was in charge of the Guadalajara Plaza and held influence in the states of Jalisco, Colima, Michoacan, Nayarit, and parts of Durango. These areas were uniquely under his control. With over 30 years in the drug business, he had his own employees, his own contacts, and his own networks. This is what made him valuable to the Sinaloa cartel. His sphere of influence, mostly states bordering the Pacific coast, was strategically perfect for importing drugs and moving them to Sinaloa, Durango, Chihuahua, and Sonora, key trafficking areas where Guzman and Zambada have great influence and control. So you see how it works? One hand washes the other. He needed to move his drugs through their areas of control. They wanted to have access to the synthetic drugs that he was making because we all know how much money you can make there. So it was a match made in heaven, if you will. But remember, there's no honor among thieves. It's also important to understand their union as being ultimately opportunist. These aren't ironclad bonds. They're business relationships. Right, these aren't dudes that grew up together and decided we're going to create this cartel and we have the, the kind of blood bonds of a real brother. That's not what's going on here. This was all business motivated. And if getting rid of one or the other or two of your associates is going to help you consolidate your business, oh, they're not above that. Because remember, it's all about the consolidation of power and moving on up and having a bigger share. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Ultimately, Cornell's death isn't going to break the larger Sinaloa cartel, although the stability he provided the organization through the order he kept in his plaza and the longevity of his career is going to be almost impossible to replicate. Rival cartels, especially the Zetas, were already active in his territory during the past year, and the power vacuum in Guadalajara is going to leave the organization reeling in the short term. But while this will drastically alter their operations, it's far from a death blow. They'll still be able to use their vast network of resources to import and export drugs, and they're very likely to throw a lot into defending Nacho's organization and turf. And no matter who ends up taking over its reins, yeah, well, we know how that worked out. Considering CJNG sprung up from all of this, the Sinaloa cartel basically created their own worst enemy from their own ranks. Killing a drug lord rarely leads to the death of the trafficking organization. As we've seen in the past, there's always someone to fill the shoes of the deceased or incarcerated, and the organization in some form continues to function. The most recent example of this was the Beltran Lefa cartel. Their story can shed some light on where these traffickers come from, how they come to power, and what happens after their demise, which should shed some light on the probable legacy of Nacho's death. The five Beltran Leva brothers, Artero, Alfredo, Hector, Carlos, and Alberto, were born in the municipality of Baraguato, Sinaloa, the same small region where Chapo Guzman comes from. This impoverished area has a long history of birthing outlaws and smugglers. For many years before the modern drug trade, Baraguato and the rest of the Golden Triangle region, where Sinaloa, Chihuahua, and Durango meet, was the cradle of Mexican marijuana and opium production. The Beltrans were born into this tradition. Remember, that's what the Mexicans were smuggling for the longest time, marijuana. Some heroin, but marijuana mainly. And it wasn't until Felix Gallardo until they got into the coke game heavily. While it's unknown exactly how they got their start, they eventually came under the wing of the fledgling drug lord Amado Carillo Fuentes, who began his own infamous career tending a marijuana farm in the Golden Triangle for his uncle Ernesto Fonseca Carillo, one of the founders of the first modern Mexican drug trafficking organization, and he was one of the founding members with Felix Gallardo. As Amado came to power in Juarez, so did Beltran Leva brothers. As Amado was one of the most influential, powerful, and rich drug lords of all time, so the Beltran brothers became powerful. Working in enforcement and operations, they became part of Amado's inner circle and helped him run one of the most lucrative and successful drug trafficking operations of all time. And Amado Carillo, he had a whole fleet of aircraft that he used to smuggle the drugs into the United States, so they called him the Lord of the Skies. But when Carillo died in 1997, the Beltran Leva brothers were without a master. 
But like Nacho, they had spent years developing their own network of underlings. Following the lead of one of Mexican drug trafficking's most famous diplomats, Ismael El Mayo Zambada, they brought their organization home to Sinaloa and began working with Mayo and his partner, Joaquin Guzman. Led by the eldest brother, Arturo, the brothers engaged in all parts of the Sinaloa cartel's operations, such as money laundering, drug transport, and perhaps, most notably, enforcement. It was Arturo who, in response to the Gulf cartel's formation of their own private army, known as the Zetas, formed the group of assassins known as the Los Polones and Los Negros, the two enforcement arms of the Sinaloa cartel. The formation of the three paramilitary groups would end up doing more to increase the volume and intensity of violence in Mexico over the next decade than any other factor. It was around this time that Arturo took on Edgar La Barbie Villarreal, called Barbie for his light complexion and blue eyes. The American-born hitman would become Arturo's right hand and most trusted confidant, as well as the leader of the Los Negros. And we know that he was one of the first people to commit these sorts of atrocious crimes of torture. And he filmed it all as an intimidation tactic against the Zetas because the Zetas were on some other shit. You want to talk about violence? Those dudes were on some crazy shit. And a lot of those guys were ex-special forces to boot. So they brought in La Barbie to try and counteract that. And to do that, La Barbie was extremely violent. And the torture that they were getting up to and the shit they were engaging in would make your stomach turn. After Osiel Cardenas was arrested in 2003... Guzman sent Arturo and his enforcement squads to battle the Gulf Cartel and Los Zetos in Nuevo Laredo, attempting to seize the opportunity to wrest territory from the weakened group. The results were mixed, but this became the first major skirmish in the cartel war the Mexican government is dealing with today. The brothers went on like this, running their own show as part of the larger Sinaloa Federation, until January 21st, 2008, when Alfredo Beltran Leifa was arrested by federal police and taken into custody. The arrest was strange. He was picked up riding around in an SUV with three bodyguards, $900,000 in cash, and a host of weapons. It was strange because this was the sort of thing the Beltrans had developed an extensive network of backsheesh to prevent, certainly in a home turf city like Culiacan. So they knew the fix was in, right? They had a bunch of people of their own that were well-placed in the government, people that they were paying, and they shouldn't have been getting hemmed up like this. So, of course, somebody was to blame. Olivet Artero soon came to blame Chapo. He believed that only Chapo would have known his brother's location or had the authority to sell him out to the federal police. There has been speculation that a few incidents had already developed an animosity between the two before the arrest. A botched transfer of control of the drug traffic through certain airports had earned Arturo the ire of his boss, and many reports suggest that after working for the Carillo organization, Arturo wasn't happy playing second fiddle to Guzman. Whatever the reasoning for the feud, Alfredo's arrest was the breaking point. Arturo began or continued to assemble his network to strike out on its own into what would become known as the Beltran-Leva cartel. 
Using its extensive connections with the Army, State, and Federal Police, and even the Mexican Drug Czar's office to protect itself and its base of operations in the state of Morelos, Artero would take La Barbie, Los Negros, and Los Polonis with him. It all came to a head on May 8th. Edgar Guzman, Chapo's son, was exiting his car with two friends in the parking lot of a shopping mall in Culiacan when roughly 40 gunmen stormed the lot and cut down the two with a barrage of AK-47 fire. On the same day, Artero struck back at the federal police by assassinating Edgar Milan Gomez, the head of the Mexican federal police, and the man behind the operation to arrest Alfredo. There was no mistake in the message. Almost immediately, Mexico seemed to know the repercussions would be devastating. El Universal ran a story that captured the prevailing sentiment with the headline, Psychosis and Fear Grip Sinaloa. So began the war between the Sinaloa cartel and the Beltran Leva cartel. Highly functional in their own right, the Beltran Levas used contacts in Colombia to send tons of cocaine through the Mexico City airport and the coast of Guerrero up through their trafficking corridors in Sonora and Arizona, where they held a great deal of turf and influence. With the young and ambitious Barbie running their brutal enforcement gangs and the combined 30 years of expertise of the brothers, the newly independent group quickly became one of the most dominant forces in Mexican drug trafficking. They were finally out on their own. All right, folks, we're going to wrap up with part one right here, and in the next episode, we'll pick it up with part two. All of the information that goes with the episode can be found in the description box. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.